You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norbridge, loan software that accelerates change. Anastasia, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So folks, Anastasia Caton is a partner with Hudson Cook. Um, and she advises uh, her clients on a, a number of things, and I'm going to butcher it. So I'm going to ask you, Anastasia, can you kind of give us a little bit of your your background and and you know the stuff that you're working on now, and maybe some areas that you're really passionate about? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me. Um, my practice at Hudson Cook. Well, I'll back up. Hudson Cook is a consumer financial services law firm, so we primarily work in the consumer financial services space, um, and. My practice at Hudson Cook is focused on servicing, debt collection, repossession, um, some credit reporting as well. And um, I also assist clients in handling um, federal investigations from agencies like the FTC and the CPB, as well as state attorneys general investigations, which um, I think people are surprised to learn have been happening with a lot more frequency than um, than ever. So uh, I'm pretty busy with those with those areas of my practice. Um, before coming to Hudson Cook, I worked at U.S. Bank uh, in regulatory compliance at U.S. Bank, handling uh, debt collection and bankruptcy issues in the wake of the foreclosure crisis, which was um, an exciting time to be doing consumer financial services work. And um, I speak and write frequently on the topics of servicing debt collection, so you probably see my articles floating around on the internet. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Well, it's so awesome to have you. So our topic today is omni-channel uh, and the regulatory issues that surround it. So for folks that don't know, I'm going to try to define it, but if I'm wrong, you, you feel free to chime in. But when I think of omni-channel, I, you know, there's the kind of cliche, oh, I can talk to you anytime, anyplace in the manner and fashion that's most preferred to you. But then when you think about the execution, that's when I think about some of the complexity that can come. So I'm on my phone. I start shopping for a car. I find the vehicle that I like. It points me to a dealership. I then go into the dealership. Perhaps I've completed an app on the phone or on my laptop, go to the dealership. They somehow have some of this information. Maybe I credential myself. They're they're able to see some of my info. Maybe it auto-populates an app. Then it gets submitted. I get financing. And now you know, think of it as seamlessly flowing through to that, to that servicer. Now, maybe I have some other, an app on my phone or other things, but I have this variety of ways to engage with you. And the channels are kind of agnostic as to the information that you have and my ability to conduct business. It's not that you're just forcing me down a certain pathway. I have to call you or I have to pay you with a check. There's a myriad of things that I can do along those lines. Did I butcher that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. And I also sort of feel like, I mean, from my perspective, omnichannel is not a legal term. So it just sort of means, it just sort of reflects what the industry does. And so it will probably change over time. Um, You know, in service and collection, we know that um, customers are starting as customer base, the customer base grows younger and younger or the generation of customer uh, customers that like to communicate via text message, email, um, app-based notifications, that generation is becoming a larger and larger share of the customer mm. population of a mm. client. So, you know, we know that that is their preferred 
sort of channel for, um, for talking to uh, businesses that they interact with. So, um, you know, from my perspective, yes, it is, it is these various ways of communicating. And it's the fact that the customer can have a pretty seamless experience on their terms, um, you know, without, without having to open their mail um, and without having to talk to someone on the phone, because, you know, millennials hate talking on the phone. Um, so, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of what omnichannel communication is. Great. So I think about a couple of, of specific points um, along the pathway, operationally speaking. So I get questions from folks about how much do I really need to mail stuff to, to consumers, right? So I think of, you could have an adverse action letter. Can I text it? Can I email it? All these things. These are a lot of the questions that folks have. And then obviously that, that rolls through to the servicing side. So, you know, generally speaking, top level, you know, when people say, you know, is, what are the channels that are okay from a, generally from a compliance standpoint, are there any things where it's like, Hey, this is just strictly verboten or these things have to be in paper. You know, what, what, mm-hmm. what should people be thinking about when they kind of embrace some of these new technologies? So, um, you know, the, the federal trade commission and the consumer financial protection bureau have been pretty clear that there's not a, that, that these forms of communication other than paper and telephone are fine to use. So it's fine to text customers. It's fine to email them and attempt to collect the debt. It's fine to use app-based communications to collect debts from consumers. It's In fact, the CPB has even gone so far as to say it's okay to use social media to communicate with consumers about debt. But they've, they've been abundantly clear that um, all the same rules are going to apply. So just because you're using text messages doesn't mean you don't have to comply with the limits on contact frequency. It doesn't mean that you're exempt from the rules about um, not revealing the existence of the debt to a third party. That's the big, um, just, one. That's the big one in my mind is, is, is one, not yeah. disclosing yeah. it to a third party. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, that to me and in, in what I deal with with clients that is probably the largest risk area when we talk to clients about these types of communications, because, you know, a lot of times they're the customers on a device that their employer can, can see what's going on on that device. Mm. Um, or perhaps they're, they've provided you with a work email address um, and, their, and their employer has a right to, or does in fact monitor their work email. Mm. So, Perhaps they're sharing accounts with family members. I mean, we, you know, members of my family where everyone has like the same iCloud account. So you text one of them and they like all get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very, it makes a very interesting conversation. But, you know, the, those types of considerations, it's, it's hard to know when you're communicating with the customer how many other people you're exposing this communication mm-hmm. to. Even just having your, you know, someone having their phone out on the table. I mean, we're not really gathering in social settings right now, but you know, if you're at dinner with friends and your phone is face up on the table and a notification comes through and the text of the notification is visible right there on the screen, then everyone sitting around can see, oh, this is an attempt to collect a debt. <laughs> so, you know, the, those are all, um, that I agree with you. That is probably the biggest risk area for clients that I work with because a lot of, Clients have, I think, have have gotten the the excessive frequency under control. They know these messages usually aren't very long, depending on um, on the communication. So they're not necessarily like going to be engaged in the deceptive, making deceptive statements when they um, send these communications. So it really is 
how do you guard against this risk of third-party disclosure? And the federal agencies have been pretty clear that they that they know the risk is there and that they expect um, at least debt collectors to guard against the risk. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing listening to our podcast are not debt collectors subject to the federal FDCPA, but we do know that the federal agencies refer to the FDCPA as sort of a framework for regulating yeah. predators collecting their own debt because it really is, you know, a, provides this list of unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices. And with a few exceptions, it's it's pretty, it's, it's basically a UDAP standard. And so, um, you know, we know with respect to debt collectors that the CFPB is thinking about third-party disclosure risk in 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 the context of omnichannel communications. Yeah. And, and to, to clarify for the folks that are in the non-prime market that probably don't meet the classic definition as a debt collector. Um, it, what I've, what I've actually observed Anastasia is that people tend to yield to the higher standard um, mm-hmm. just to be very protective of, of their, their business and the customer's rights as well. So, you know, one of the questions that I had down was, can you safely email and text to collect a debt? I think you already answered it. And the answer is yes, as long as you can, you control for the third party disclosure. And then there was, there was another item I think you threw in as well. Yeah. The the other, I mean, it's, it's all the, it's all the typical rules that apply when you're collecting debt. So you don't want to communicate with excessive frequency. So it's, it's probably not a good idea in the context of text messages, for example, um, to send like five text messages in a row <laughs> to a customer because once they've received that first message, you've communicated with them, you've reached them. And so what's the reason to send all these subsequent messages? Um, so, so for, and, and I know, you know, it's very easy to send a bunch of text messages in a row. It's different than phone calls, mm-hmm. right? Like a phone call. Um, you normally have the you have the customers lined up in the queue and the collectors calling one at a time and it's a drain on resources. They can't call another customer if they're calling, um, you know, one customer five times in a row. So it is it's a different. It's easy to do to to send a lot of text messages, but it's something that um, you have to exercise some restraint because there is a very real risk of being accused of harassment or excessive text messaging. Um, and then, you know, the content of the messages shouldn't be, it shouldn't contain deceptive language. It shouldn't um, say anything that's abusive or harassing. You know, you don't want to curse at customers in text message. I think it's, a lot of it is straightforward, but a lot of it is just requires thinking through how are these messages different than what the FDCPA sought to regulate when it was passed and or signed into law in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, and what, what peculiar things are going on in this space that um that we need to think about yeah i remember the days when i had uh, you know i'd be refining a mortgage or something and i had to run over to get a paper off the fax machine because i didn't want anybody else to see it (laughs) (laughs) i mean this is this is this is what people were dealing with back then but now we have Mm -hmm. these things like we were talking earlier about um some of these uh you know customer apps right i can i can basically create a customer profile and display all of their prior payments and all this stuff on an app, you know, have those been brought into discussion with any of the regulators? Are there specific regulations that come into play with those? Um, Not that I'm aware. I don't think I've seen um, with creditors. um, I don't think I've seen, so it's certainly at the federal level with respect to creditors. There's not really any specific federal law regulating creditors collection practices. 
And then at the state level, I'm not aware of any laws that are specific to app-based collection communications. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau promulgated a proposed rule on debt collection last year, and they got into some specifics about um, omnichannel communication in the context of debt collection. And they didn't go into detail about app-based communications, but I think we can infer um, that we know what they were trying to do was create a framework that allows for different types of technology to you know, continue to emerge and to be regulated in a reasonable way. Um, we know they were thinking about that when they promulgated their rule. So while there's not, and, and I apologize for not knowing whether there's a specific mention of app-based communications in the proposed rules, but there are um, takeaways, I think, from the proposed rules that we can pretty easily apply to app-based communications. So, um, so for example, um, you want to take into account convenient time and place. What's a convenient time and place to communicate with this customer? And the Bureau has said that with an electronic communication, you need to assume that the, the customer receives the communication when you send it. So that one, one thing to think about is, am I batching only push notifications and sending them at midnight? Because if so, that's potentially an inconvenient time to communicate with most of my customers. Um, other things, um, you know, for social media communications, the Bureau was clear that you can't make, you can't publicly communicate with customers on social media. So you can't, you know, post on their Facebook wall <laughs> about the debt, but you can privately talk with them on social media. So you can send them, uh, you can send direct messages to mm. customers on social media. And there are some safe harbors to protect against the risk of third-party disclosures, but I think those are really specific to text message and email communications. So for the most part, um, when it comes to app-based communications, we're really looking at like a UDAP sort of regulatory in here. And it is all the same sort of FDCPA type considerations when it comes to app-based communications. So third-party disclosure risks, you know, don't, don't put deceptive content in the messages, um, you know, you don't want to message send notifications to excessive frequency or at inconvenient times or places. Um, and, you know, to the extent that um, a state law, for example, might require specific disclosures, you want to consider how you would make those disclosures in the context of a push notification. If mm -hmm. What are some examples of and some disclosures? Yeah, like what are some examples of disclosure? I think of a mini Miranda, but you may tell me yeah. that that's not actually not. Uh, well, I'll let you talk. What are some examples <laughs> of some of those disclosures? No, you're absolutely right. Mini Miranda is the big one. Um, other disclosures are, I think, much easier to comply with. So, you know, you have states that require disclosure of your office hours or um, the, the name of the creditor on whose behalf you're collecting, which is often, you know, in the creditor context is going to be yourself. Um, you'll have disclosures like um, the creditor's phone number. Those are pretty easy, I think, to put in a text message or a notification. But like you say, the mini Miranda is the trickier one. Yeah. And for the folks that are listening, the mini Miranda is, it, it essentially says it's an attempt to collect a debt. This is the attempt to collect a debt by a debt collector and any information obtained will be used for that purpose. So you have sort of two concerns here when you put this type of warning in um, in a text message or a notification or even an email. Um, one, you could potentially reveal the existence of the debt to a third party because by its terms, this warning says 
This is when time to collect debt. Um, the second consideration in particular in apps and um, text messages is that it's a long morning. And so you've got, you know, do you want to have one long message that has this warning at the end? Or do you want to break it up into multiple messages? And then you run into that same issue of, um, you know, you're sending too many messages in a row. Or do you want to put it in a link? And if you put in a link, is that sufficient to with whatever state law requirement there is for providing this disclosure. It's, a lot of this depends on what your risk tolerance is and what exactly the state says about the disclosure because there's a handful, for creditors, there's just a small handful of states that require the mini Miranda, but the triggers are all different. They don't all look the same. So if you're operating in every state, you want to consider how, how do I, how can I get this, you know, what's my risk when it comes to third party disclosure? What's my risk when it comes to complying with this particular provision of state law and how do I best deliver this message to the customer um, and, and discharge my compliance obligations. So it's a, the disclosures, I feel like I've spent, I don't know, hours and hours and hours and hours of clients working through these types of disclosures because it's just, these laws were not designed for this environment. Right. Um, they were for faxes <laughs> and letters and phone calls. Um, not for for a tiny computer that sits in your pocket. So I definitely pick up like, so if I was somebody who didn't really have much omni-channel built out operationally, and I want to em- embark upon that, I know, for example, the same controls that I have with making phone calls for the dialer or for, you know, hitting certain numbers. Okay. We hit this number today. We're not going to hit it again. We left a message. We're done. I think about putting controls around the other communication methods, such as email and texting. So you want to have some of those controls in place so that you can show that you're exercising management over it and that people aren't just free to just go willy nilly. What are some of the other like bigger laws? Like if I was, if I was saying, okay, I'm going to go down this path and I'm the COO, um, but I want to make sure I'm covering all my bases with all the different major regs. Like what are the other major regs that you think of aside from UDAP? Yeah, so you print out a, a really big one. You mentioned the dialer. Um, so the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, TCPA, also, um, it, it doesn't seem like an old law, but now that we're trying to fit text messages into it, it has become a very old law mm. <laughs> um, in terms of says and what it regulates. So the TCPA requires, um, requires a caller when you're communicating with someone on their cell phone using a device that's considered to be an auto dialer requires the caller to um, get a certain level of consent from the person they're dialing using the auto dialer. And depending on the nature of the call, the consent either has to be in writing or it doesn't be in writing. It just has to be a a prior express consent. It's a best practice though to always get these consents in writing because um, you, you, the caller bear the burden of proving if you're sued, which you will get sued. (laughs) you bear the burden of proving that you had the appropriate consent. And so the Federal Communications Commission um, interprets the TCPA and enforces the TCPA, and they have said that text messages are subject to the TCPA's requirements. So what that means for a creditor that wants to send text messages to its customers is that in all likelihood, unless your your collectors are using their own cell phones to text customers, which is a whole different issue, and I would strongly advise to get that. That's right. Like you point out. Uh, kids, don't, don't do that at home ever. 
<laughs> like you point out, there, you have almost no control over what's Mm-mm. going on. You don't. I would strongly advise against that. Um, but, you know, in all likelihood, you are using something that's going to be considered an auto dialer. And you can get to fight with the consumer or the plaintiff over that all you want. But I think you, when it comes to compliance, it's best to just develop a compliance program that assumes they are using an auto dialer, get the appropriate consents. And then um, once you have the consents in place, from there, you have to honor the customer's request to opt out, a reasonable request to opt out. And so we see this all the time when we get text messages from political campaigns or from businesses, they'll say um, to opt out, reply stop. And that's that's the TCPA in real life, um, in action. So you, know, you have to give an opportunity for the customer to opt out and you have to honor their opt out pretty much in the, in the text message context, it's, it's the best practice just to honor it immediately. Um, and, you know, you, no matter how good your compliance is in TCPA, you are going to get sued. Um, there's no, there's hardly any way around getting sued in the TCPA because it's a very lucrative statute for the plaintiff's bar. Um, but that being said, I think most clients that I work with are comfortable with that risk because it just is just a superior way to communicate with consumers and more and more consumers are preferring that, that method of communication. There more people prefer it than are going to sue them over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if I was going to spend time in any one place, if I was back in a COO position, I would take a good hard look at the controls in place to protect you from those TCPA violations. In my case, I had a weak control at my last auto finance company, I, I, I thought it was sufficient enough. And it had to do with, you know, the, the, the agent, you know, when they get a notification that somebody doesn't want to be touched anymore, that they just update the system of record seems easy enough. Um, and I wanted to remove any resistance, right? Any points of resistance for the consumer to actually make that request and have it adhered to. Well, you forget to click the box. And then next thing mm-hmm. you know, the customer doesn't say anything. Customer doesn't say anything. It lets you just call them and call them and call them. And then when they accumulate enough, they go to your plaintiff's bar guy down in Louisiana and all of a sudden, hey, we got this one. And you know there's more coming. You know they're going to go and fish for more people. So um, these are the things that we're protecting ourselves against. And TCPA has painful violation, right? It's it's painful. It's a, what is it? It's it's a per- like per instance type thing, it's, it's financial, you know, you get hit with like a couple thousand bucks per, per instance or something like that. Did you, I don't know off the top of my head. It's, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Don't do it. I have colleagues here that I go to for, for questions like that, but um, it's bad. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, if you're a successful um, class action in TCPA, it's not uh, anything that any, Creditor, that collector is, you know, looks forward to paying the the judgment in no, that. So no, we don't. Are yeah. there any? Um, you mentioned earlier uh, about maybe some recent updates or changes to the regulatory landscape. Um, you mentioned a CFPB rule or a bulletin that came out last year um, that puts a little more clarity around some of these alternate methods. Um, are there any other enhancements of note or pending enhancements you'd like to, you think would be helpful for people to just keep an eye on or, or make sure that they go back, double check their operations and that they've got good coverage there? Yeah. So I'll, I'll speak about the CFPB stuff because um, that is at this point, all we know that is coming. 
even though it probably doesn't apply to most people listening, I think it's worth noting because, you know, you could see a state like California um, do something similar for creditors because California's Rosenthal Act does regulate creditors very similarly to the FDCPA. So the CFPB's um, notice of proposed rulemaking, which in the federal rulemaking um, landscape, that is a close to as close to a final rule as you're going to get. Mm. The final rule is expected anytime this month. Like by the time this podcast is released, we could have the final rule from the CFPB on debt collection. Um, and we expect it to be pretty similar to the proposed rule, which was issued in the late spring, early summer of last year. Um, and the, the CFPB took great pains to think, I think, about how do customers want to be communicated with in this context and um, how can they create a flexible regulatory environment for um, the businesses that want to communicate with consumers in this way. And so one thing to keep in mind though, is that these rules are very specific to debt collectors. That's which a are very good point. I was going to mention that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So th- these are, these are companies that don't have a customer service relationship with consumers. So um, the incentives, I think, are a little different for debt collectors, which is often why we see much stricter regulation of them. Also, the types of debt they're collecting, is it's you sort of have converged on one main type of debt that debt collectors co- collect, and that's usually an unsecured claim. Um, so there's not necessarily the threat of repossession. That's not to say that that's always the case, but oftentimes the debt collection industry is collecting on a judgment or... Um, like a deficiency balance that's unsecured or a credit card balance that's unsecured. So they're not necessarily, there's not the threat of pending repossession. So you don't have the level of urgency that um, a lot of secured creditors have when they're trying to reach their customers. So those are all the sort of things to keep in mind for why we think that the CPB is going to look differently at creditors than they are at debt collectors. Um, these rules are very technical. That's another issue. They're very technical. So we don't expect them to necessarily apply these specific rules to creditors because of how technical they are. And the Bureau has never tried to enforce technical provisions of the statute of the FDCPA against creditors collecting their own debts. So you don't expect creditors to provide a mini Miranda warning under under federal law. They might have to provide one under state law, but the Bureau doesn't deal with state law. Mm-hmm. Um, and they creditors comply with the debt validation requirements in federal law. So setting the stage there, I'll go into what the rule says or what the proposed rule says, um, just understanding that there are many, many reasons why I don't think a creditor necessarily needs to like go back and rewrite its compliance management system mm-hmm. when the comes out. Um, so the first one is the considerations for convenient time and place. Um, you know, Debt collectors need to consider, I mentioned earlier, but debt collectors need to consider when you're sending a communication, um, the Bureau is going to consider it received when it's sent. So, um, you know, it's not like you, it's considered received when the customer actually opens their, unlocks their phone in the morning or um, whatever the case may be. It's considered received when you send it. Restrictions on work emails. So the Bureau has specifically said that they don't want debt collectors to communicate with consumers on their work email if they know it's their work email or should know it's their work email without specific consent from the customer. Um, social media requirements. So 
no, no, um, no public social media communications. I mentioned that already. Don't post on customers' walls. Um, message with them privately. And then there's um, a requirement to allow customers to opt out of text message communications. It's not, it's not, I haven't looked at it in a while, but I, I don't think that that part is too off base or, or too different than what the TCPA requires. But on the e it, there's also a requirement to have, to allow customers to opt out of email communications, which is um, brand new. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty technical requirement to have, have consumers opt out of email communications. And then they've created this pretty technical, complicated safe harbor regime to protect against third-party disclosure risk. Um, and so the, the debt collector has to take all these steps before they can communicate with a customer via text message or email. But if they do that, then they will presume to have not disclosed the debt to a third party. So it's helpful for debt collector in a way, but we know that it's probably going to be helpful for larger debt collectors who can um, get their com compliance management systems in shape and, and comply with these rules pretty easily um, and help avoid you know, an enforcement action. So those are, you know, of, of that list, I think the last two I mentioned, the requirements for opt-outs and the safe harbor to protect against third-party disclosure risk, those are definitely very specific to debt collectors. The first three are potentially something we could see the, the, the Bureau enforcing against creditors mm -hmm. because those tend to be the more like unfair, deceptive, abusive um, standards that the Bureau ordinarily enforces against creditors. All right. So last question to bring it home. And this is this has been outstanding, Anastasia. Thank you so much for your time. Um, are there any best practices that you've been observing? You know, and I think I, I think, you know, seasonally about what's going on with COVID and the pandemic. I know a lot of creditors have offered significant forbearance, uh, even on top of the government stimulus. And as we look to fourth quarter and through next year, we're already seeing delinquencies start start to pick up a little bit. Um, are there any best practices that you've seen or heard, you know, during this whole thing? I mean, from the debt collector side or, or even from the creditor side? Yeah. So um, I think even since the last time you and I spoke, circumstances have changed because it looks like there's not going to be another stimulus package this year. So we probably are going to see an acceleration of defaults from customers and potentially more job losses. Um, so, you know, I, I think on the uh, um, payment accommodation side, it's definitely, you know, I think a lot of creditors were sort of acting on the fly in the, in the spring and summer when they were offering payment accommodations, which was probably okay to do because you probably didn't have in place a pandemic plan, mm -hmm. <laughs> pandemic servicing. Um, but, you know, looking now at what potentially is coming, it may or may not make sense to use your ordinary payment accommodation plans or, you know, if you have a, a you know, your typical payment extension plan, it may or may not be appropriate to use that. You may want to go back to what you had implemented during the pandemic. But regardless of what path you choose, um, it's important to document everything. And that's that's the big thing we've been talking to clients about on the payment accommodation piece. And when I say payment accommodations, I'm referring to deferrals, extensions, um, due date changes, anything that makes it easier for the customer to make their payments or keeps them from being their car repossessed. 
So, you know, on that side of things, whether, again, whether you need to follow your established procedures, decide to follow your established procedures, or whether you go outside of them, it's important to document why you're doing what you're doing. It may be good to get some guidance in place, think about what worked, what didn't work in the spring and summer, and think about what you might want to use this time around, because I think there's a lot of economic hardship, unfortunately, coming down the pike. And um, and it, it would be good, you know, I think creditors have a little more time to prepare or have a little more notice this time around. So you might want to have um, stuff in place, have the, the right programs in place this time around. Um, and then the second piece is a customer communication piece. And that's something I've been talking to clients about, um, you know, do we need to do, do you need to change how you're communicating with customers? customers right now. And we know, and you and I talked about this, we know that um, a lot of a lot of consumers are out of work potentially or they've changed jobs. They're working a different schedule because they're working from home um, doing virtual schooling of their children. Um, so there's all kinds of changes to daily life that are happening now or that have happened in the last six months that can affect how consumers want to be communicated with. And so those are things you want to check in with. I mean, be, you know, be sensitive to what they're going through and, and what they're dealing with, but also you know, ask them, what's, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Is there a good, you know, has your schedule changed? Has your, have your circumstances changed? Is there a time that's inconvenient? Are there times that are convenient? Is there a method of communication that you prefer for now, and you want to check in more frequently on these types of issues because things are changing so rapidly. Um, you know, they could one day they could have a completely normal schedule; the next day they could be caring for a sick relative. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, keeping keeping in touch with them, keeping a light touch, but keeping in touch so you can understand what they need going forward. I think is really important as we head into probably what's going to be a surge in a virus in a, in a in the beginning of the winter time and um, potentially a very serious economic hardship. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and and this is no, by no means a way for us to paint any kind of picture of fear. Um, We just, I mean, in looking at the data and seeing these things kind of picking up, I think, you know, the, it's going to have to settle out, right. It's going to have to settle out. And, you know, as much as we can do to make it be a softer landing as possible, you know, we should, we should certainly do it. The the beauty of the non-prime lender is that, we've pretty much seen it all. I mean, we've been through economic cycles, we've been through consumer unemployment and, and the rest of it. Um, I've never seen the extensions, you know, the extensions within the ABSs uh, within non-prime, which usually float around 5% spiked to 25%, and, but they're coming back down and they're going to settle in. And so as these things settle in and as the entire I mean, the entire ecosystem, you look at, at used, used vehicle inventories or recovery values, all these things have been disrupted. So these things are all going to have to settle out. Um, so I, I, love, I love the guidance on, on kind of having a, a more caring approach and checking in more frequently. I mean, I think that's what we're all doing mm-hmm. with each other during the pandemic anyway, just getting that head check and checking in with the customers. So, um, well, Anastasia, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for the time, folks. Anastasia Caton is with the law offices of Hudson Cook. Um, I'm partial because I'm um, with the NAF and, and we do a great deal of stuff with Hudson Cook. We have um, 
what I consider to be the best, uh, the best compliance training available. And, uh, and you, you would expect to see the best people at the Hudson Cook uh, offices as well. And Anastasia is no exception. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joel. It's good talking to you. The Consumer Fi Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.